Good evening, Rocky Peak. Great to see you tonight. Uh, my name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors. And if you're here for the very first time, I too want to welcome you and just pray that God would meet you here in a very personal and powerful way. Um, before we jump into our time of, of teaching, uh, I just want to mention, you know, last week I told the story, if you were here, uh, this friend of mine whose sister is running a school over in India. And so this week they watched that message over there. And uh, they were just so blessed and uh, were so excited. In fact, uh, he sent me an email and uh, he says, uh, Hi, Pastor. Thank you so much for the wonderful message. Glory be to God. And we are so humbled and honored. Wow, what a message. I was so excited to hear it again and again. Um, <laughs> then my sister, Akko, was so touched. She cried with joy and was so encouraged about the hand of God being used in this way. She said she is preparing to visit the jail during Christmas, so she will update you. Isn't that awesome? That's that such a cool story here that wrapped up. And anyway, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And inside your message, uh, your uh, program is a message note sheet. It's green and white. And you'll definitely want to take that out because that'll help you follow along. And then if you are ready to go, um, I can't wait. You ready to go? Let's pray. God, I'm just about bursting. Uh, just so excited to be here, um, so excited what you're doing in our lives, so excited about the vision you have for us, and so God, we just come hungry tonight, and we're really looking forward to what you would say to us. We have just become accustomed that you will speak, and you'll speak in a personal and direct way, and so we pray that you would speak to us and teach us as we've been learning what it looks like to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Well, uh, our story starts today uh, at a church far, far away, a distant church, um, so it's not local, um, and I want to make sure we're clear on that, um, but, um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to know exactly, kind of remember exactly how this star, story start, but, um, but they had both come to Christ um, as adults, and they both had a powerful encounter with Jesus, and their lives were radically transformed, um, and they both uh, discovered that they had leadership gifts, and as God would have it, they both became part of a powerful leadership team in a really awesome and healthy church. But as time went on, there began to be rubs in their relationship. Uh, conflicts began to develop. And though they were passionate followers of Jesus, and though they were gifted leaders and should have known better, instead of moving towards each other to resolve that conflict, they let the walls continue to build. And as time went on, uh, the division between them got bigger and beater, bigger. And uh, as you might expect, it soon began to overflow into the church that they helped lead. And you know how this happens, that people start to feel like they need to start taking sides. And so as time went on, this conflict between these two leaders began to spill out over into the church and began to threaten the unity of the entire community of Jesus, and little did they know, 
there's no way that they could have foreseen how this story was going to end. Well, today, we are continuing this journey that we've been on in this series called The Gospel. And if you're brand new here at Rocky Peak, um, I want to welcome you, but this is a series that's based on a letter that was written from a man that we call the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders of the early movement of Jesus, to a group of Christ followers that he had led to Jesus, at least led many of them to Jesus, about 10 years before, in a distant city. It was about 850 miles away from where it currently was at, um, in the city, uh, the ancient city of Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece. And the reason we call this series The Gospel is because in this series, more than any of the other 13 letters, Paul uses the word gospel more per page than any other of his letters. But it's interesting because his concern in this letter is not simply that we would understand this epic message of the gospel, that as we've been learning, is much bigger and and brighter and bolder, higher, uh, deeper, richer, wider than we often have understood But his goal is we learn how to live out the gospel, the practical implications of the gospel. And so the way I put it is that we're learning that the gospel is not just a message to be believed, that it's a life to be lived. And so today, uh, at land uh, record-breaking speed, we are moving into chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, uh, go ahead and turn to chapter two, there in your notes, she has a section called um, The Gospel Creating Community. But we're actually going to begin today at 127 because that's where the passage actually begins. Now, just a quick sidebar here on reading the Bible is that if you're new to reading the Bible, you may not know this, but the, when the Bible was written, there were no chapters or verses. Um, those were added later to help us find our way, find our place, so we can all get easier on the same page. And sometimes those chapters and verses are divided at great locations and sometimes at terrible locations. This is one of the terrible locations, right? So these are not, the chapter divisions are not inspired. And the reason it's important for you to know that is because often if you start reading at a chapter, like a chapter a day, uh, what you miss is the flow of the argument and it can lead to misunderstanding or a lack of depth of the passage. And so today we're jumping into chapter two, but we really need to go back to 127. That's where this topic begins. We won't repeat all of it, because we did last week, but we need to set it up there. So 127, Paul says, whatever happens. So remember, the apostle Paul, he's in prison. He's in Rome. He's not sure if he will be released, retained, or executed. He's still waiting for a trial date. And he says, so... These are people that love him, care about him, they're worried about him. He says, hey, whatever happens to me, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Which as we've seen, that when we come to Jesus, we become part of this epic story, this epic drama that we call the gospel. So he says, live your life in light of who God has called you to be, in light of the part you're called to play in the story. And he says, then whether I come and see you, in other words, whether I'm released from prison, or I only hear about you in my absence, in other words, I get reports, um, I will know that you are standing firm. Can I underline that or pay attention that it become important later today? You're standing firm in one spirit, 
striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So if you were here last week, we learned that this is sort of like a thesis statement for the body of the letter. And as Paul writes, remember, he's in prison. He had just received a visit from a man named Epaphrodites, who's an amazing leader. We'll learn more about him in a couple weeks in chapter two. Uh, that he's brought Paul uh, a generous financial gift to support him in prison, to support his ministry. Paul loves this guy. The guy's almost died uh, as a result of this journey. Um, and so uh, he's heard from Epaphrodites what's going on in Philippi. And what he's learned is that there's a couple big issues on the table right away. One is, is that there is some growing division in the church. So this has been an amazing church. This has been a church that loves one another, loves Paul, loves Jesus. It's been amazing, but there's this growing issue of division in the church. And secondly, the second issue is that they too are undergoing persecution much like Paul. So his initial two concerns is that, hey, let's work through this issue of disunity and let's be courageous and stand firm under fire so that together with one voice we can advance the gospel. All right, so that's, the, that's kind of where we're going. Now today he's gonna tackle this first topic then as we jump into chapter two of what does it take, take to create the community of Jesus, this unified community that Jesus came and died to create. All right, so we're gonna jump to chapter two now. And we'll pick it up at verse one. So this is a passage not so much about our vertical relationship with God as our horizontal relationship with one another. In other words, when you came to Jesus, you become part of the family of God, this new community. And so Jesus is part of the community. You're part of the community. I'm part of the community. So this is a passage that really focuses on the unity of the community. And so he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, so he's not just talking about you personally, he's talking about if you, the community of Jesus, if you've experienced any encouragement from being united with Christ, um, if there's any comfort from his love, in the Greek it doesn't say the word his, it just says if there's any comfort of love. In other words, you've come into this relationship with Jesus, this love for him, his love for you, the love for one another, if you've experienced that as a community, if there's any common sharing in the spirit. This word sharing is that famous word we've talked about several times, that word koinonia, that word that speaks of deep communion, of fellowship, uh, of community, of sharing. And it's a sharing in the spirit. You have the Holy Spirit I have the Holy Spirit, so we're a supernatural community here. And he says, if you've experienced that, if you, there's any tenderness and compassion, and we'll come back to those two terms later, he says, then make my joy complete. So he's writing as an apostle, but he's a friend, he loves his church. He says, make my, as your, as your leader, as a friend, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Now in the Greek, it actually literally says, if, by thinking the same thing. And we'll come back to that later. He's not talking about agreeing on every issue. He's not saying that unity requires uniformity. Uh, we'll come back to that. But he says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. So how do you create this new community? Well, do nothing out of selfish ambition, kind of living for number one, or vain conceit, letting ego drive your life but rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking out to your own interests, 
but each of you to the interests of the others. And so if everyone's looking out for one another, this beautiful community of unity. And he says, uh, and so then he'll move on next week to verse five, and we'll get there next week. But that's our passage today. And what I want to do today is this amazing passage is highlight three key steps that we need to take if we want to build the community that Jesus came to create. And then after we've laid these three steps, we're gonna come back and I'm gonna ask four questions based on those three steps to help us evaluate how we're doing and uh, what's the next step uh, for you, for me as a church, as we learn to listen and follow to build the community of the king, right? So uh, there in your note sheets, a section called Creating Community, Three Key Steps. So the first step, the first step, if we're going to create this amazing community that Jesus died to create, the first step is we have to catch the vision. We have to get clear on the vision. Like, why did Jesus come? So, this is something that we talked about some last week, but when you and I, as modern-day Christ followers, Often when we talk about the gospel, we think primarily in terms of our vertical relationship with God, right? So we think in terms of, has any, when did someone share the gospel with you? Like, we, hey, when did you first hear the gospel? Usually when we use a term, we think in terms of when did someone share with you how your sins could be forgiven so you would go to heaven when you die. It's about your vertical relationship. And it usually, when we, it has nothing to do with the community of Jesus or church. It has to do with your vertical relationship with God. And what we're learning in this series is the gospel is much bigger than only our vertical relationship with God. That when Jesus came, he came to reconcile and restore all of creation. And that includes our vertical relationship with God, our horizontal relationships with one another, and our relationship with all the cosmos healed and restored, that this world would be restored. And so this was the vision that the Philippians were losing track of. They were sharing Christ. Uh, they, They wanted to have an impact for Jesus. They were probably fairly clear on their relationship with God, but they were losing the vision for a unified community. That's part of the vision. And here's what I want you to catch. This is why it's so important. We went back to Philippians 1.27. Remember, Paul's explaining what it takes to live a life worthy of the gospel. That's, what, that's the topic I'm going to do. What's it take? And he says that to live a life worthy of the gospel is to build this community that Jesus came to die for. Like he came not just to restore your personal relationship with God, he came to restore their, our horizontal relationship. He came to create a new people, a new race, a new humanity that will rule with him in the new creation that's coming. And that's what the church of Jesus is. Now, this is what they were losing sight of. And so what he's doing is in a very gentle way, He's taking them back to the start of the vision. He's reminding them of what they've already experienced in the community of the king. So, for example, sometimes when you're doing marriage counseling, maybe you've been in marriage counseling, you've experienced this, that that sometimes a counselor, when a couple is really having a hard time 
kind of moving forward in their marriage, they're experiencing increasing conflict, that sometimes a counselor will say, hey, tell me how you met. Tell me what your relationship was like in the early days. And one of the reasons they're doing that is to help you recapture the vision. There was a time you loved one another. There was a time you couldn't wait to be together. There was a time when you brought great joy. Let's remember where we came from because that's where we want to get back to. And what Paul is doing here is he's reminding them of what they've already experienced in the community of the king to build on that. And so if you look at your Bibles, in chapter 2 and verse 1, this is what he's doing. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, as a com- you've experienced this encouragement of being in the king's community, if there's any comfort of love, if you've experienced the love of Jesus, love for one another, this whole new love uh, that characterized the early movement of Jesus, if there's any common sharing, koinonia, in the Holy Spirit, if there's any tenderness and compassion, and I, I love these words here, uh, the word tenderness is kind of a tough word for us. It's a, it's a word in Greek that's called splankna. <laughs> uh, so I won't even you know, try to explain that. But that's what I call splankna. But what it refers to, it was the ancient word for describing your deepest emotions. It actually refers like to your intestines, your inner parts. So like we talk about your gut. What do you feel in your gut? Or do you feel that loving? It's, it's like a word. And so this is the word that Paul used in chapter one when he said, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you remember that? It's like, I long for you with the splunkna of Christ Jesus, with the inner parts of Jesus. So it's a very powerful emotional word. And he says, if you've experienced this tenderness, this powerful emotion of being in the community of Jesus where you love him, you love one another, you've experienced this, this koinonia this, of the Spirit. He says, then make my joy complete, right? So he's taking them back to kind of rem- catch the vision. And so here's what I want you to understand, that if we are going to live a life worthy of the gospel, we have to catch a vision of what the gospel is about. And the gospel is more than you and God. It's about you and us. It's about this new family of the king. It's about creation being restored to where the original shalom of relationship that was lost is restored in the community of the Messiah. This is why Jesus came. It's why he died. Not just to restore your individual relationship, but to restore our corporate community relationship right? So that's number one. We have to catch the vision. Now, number two, the second thing we have to do is reject narcissism. Sir, would you please sit down? You can't leave right now. No, just kidding. Um, So if you ask the Apostle Paul, so what does it take to create this community of the king, this community of love, encouragement, of support, of koinonia, the shared life of the, of the coming of the kingdom of God, but this shared life in the spirit here and now, um, he says that there's two steps we need to take. And the first step is the negative, the second step is the positive, but they're very closely related. They're like two sides of the same coin. And the first step is to reject narcissism. So 
let's, let's set this up. So uh, if you were to read the entire New Testament or the, the writings of Paul, what you would see in his broader writings, he doesn't go into it here, but in his broader writings, that Paul would say that, that when we rebelled against God as a race, something broke in the human heart. It's not just our relationship with God, it's our relationship with one another. If you ever read the early chapters of Genesis, you see in the, in the uh, creation account that the moment that, that Adam and Eve rebelled against God, there is instantly a breakdown in their relationship where there was love before, now there's blame and breaking. And you see it all in the opening chapters of Genesis as war and violence and hatred and polygamy and sexual immorality and uh, everything begins to spread rapidly uh, in the biblical account. And so what this means is when you and I are born, we are all born with a natural bent to look out for number one. Have you noticed this? This is why when you look at a photo, you'll always look at yourself, like a group photo. You always find yourself. You don't look for Sarah. Hey, how does Sarah look? You know, it's like, like for Frank, oh, how's Frank? Like, oh, he's looking good in that. Good, he'll be happy. Like we all tend to have a natural tendency to look for ourselves, right? And so when we come to Jesus, this is part of the transformation process. That Jesus is going to transform us to be like him, that we're going to become a people that we reject that old approach to life, that narcissistic, me first, uh, look, use other people for my benefits, live for my ego. And so Paul says, if we're going to build this community of the king, that we have to listen and follow the Holy Spirit in the realm of relationships, and we have to learn to, to not just look out for number one, uh, but we need to not live for our ego, but we need to learn to live for others uh, and to love them well. So we're going we're to reject a life that's self-centered, self-absorbed, and self-focused. Now, if you ever have known a true narcissist, and I'm not asking for a show of hands, <laughs> especially married couples. Um, <laughs> we've ever known a true narcissist, I mean, and by this I mean a clinically defined narcissist. You know that the mark of narcissism, it's all about them. And they're gonna use every power in their uh, arsenal to make life about them, and you become part of the world, you become part of them. But here's what I want you to catch. As a fallen race, we are all, to a certain extent, closet narcissists. So when the Bible talks about dying to the old life, it's talking about dying to that natural tendency we all have for narcissism. And so this is what Paul says in uh, chapter two, in verse three, he says, then make my joy complete by being like my, verse two, having the same love, blah, blah, blah. Verse three, do nothing out of what? Selfish ambition, right? Uh, the word has to do with rivalry, uh, kind of that competitive spirit of seeking our own best first. Uh, do nothing uh, out of self or, what's it, or vain conceit. It's interesting, the word for vain conceit is two words, it's come, it's two words put together in the Greek. One is the word kenos, which means empty, and, and the second word is glory, doxia, or doxa. And so it's kenodoxia, which means empty glory, where you, you go through life always seeking your own ego first. 
How do I make myself look good? How do I get the credit? Uh, how do I rise to the top of this situation? So he says that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus and live a life worthy of the gospel, you have got to learn how to do relationships a new way, and you have to die to this old life with this natural magnetic pull to being all about you, kind of the center of the universe, and we're gonna, we're gonna move and follow Jesus to live a new way to we live to love others. Now, this is obviously what's going on in Philippi. Paul doesn't just randomly pick topics to write on. In his letters, if he's writing on a topic, there's a reason why he's writing on it. And we've talked about this, that it would, it would appear that in Philippi, there was a growing concern about a growing faction division in the church. And here, what he does in chapter two, he very gently introduces the topic, and he gives some wide, um, kind of wide generic teaching that everyone's sitting there. Remember when, when you get a letter from the Apostle Paul, it's not like you make copies. You read it publicly out loud in church. So this whole letter is going to be read at one time. And when you remember that, it makes the letters make a lot more sense. So he starts off and, hey, you know, if you've experienced any encouragement, if there's been any tenderness, uh, if you any comfort, you've shared any fellowship in the Spirit, hey, make my joy complete, make my day uh, very gentle. Everyone's going, yes, yes, yes. That is awesome. Amen. But when it gets to chapter 4, after he has wrapped up the body of the letter, we suddenly get a little more insight. Remember today when we started the day with the story of these two leaders come to Jesus as adults, powerful conversions, discover they have great leadership gifts, become part of an amazing leadership team, and then they have a falling out. That comes from chapter 4. And so let's turn to chapter 4. By the way, we're going to cover this. So when you get to chapter 4, which will be this passage, you'll be in December. <laughs> Just know when I'll say there, hey, we already covered verses 2 and 3, that you were here. All right? So, um, so let's pick it up at verse 1. This is where he wraps up the body. Remember where I told you in chapter 1, verse 27, where he said, stand firm. And I said, pay attention to that. That'll come later. So now he's told us the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, how to stand firm. And when he gets to 4, what? He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. He starts to stand firm. He tells us how to stand firm. Stand firm in this way. Now we're ready to move on to some final things. The main body of the letter is over. And out of the blue, now remember, you're sitting there in church. You're feeling very good about this letter. And all of a sudden, you hear your name called. <laughs> this would be like a reading in, and Lauren Laporta, <laughs> and Neil Johnson, I urge you in the Lord 
to get your act together <laughs> and put into practice what I told you so gently as my dear friends back in chapter two. <laughs> but in this case, it's not Lauren and Neil, fortunately. It's two women that are powerful leaders. They are Paul of, they're part of Paul's leadership team in some capacity. Two gifted women, I'm sure that they love Jesus but they're sitting there as the letter's being read, and all of a sudden, he says, I plead, very strong word in the Greek, I plead. And notice he says it twice, I plead with Euodia. I plead with Syntyche. Notice it's like he's there in the room. He doesn't even say, I plead with you too. It's like, I plead with you, Euodia. I plead with you, Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Guess what? Exact same language as chapter two. This is that, to think the same thing. He's saying, hey, he's gonna go on and he loves these women. He has high respect for these women. They've been part of his team. But as we read this, most scholars would agree that what he's addressing in chapter two is very likely tied to chapter four. That these two women who are gifted leaders have had some sort of falling out. We don't know whether it's over philosophy of ministry, whether it's about how to, whether it was out uh, over kind of Jewish food laws. We don't know if it had to do with persecution, how to respond, because they're under persecution. But there was some sort of falling out that very likely was getting passed on as leaders to the church. And so he says, I plead to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion. Interesting, there's a, this is a third person that's unnamed. We don't know who this is. Some think it's Luke. You know, some think it's Epaphrodite. Some think it's Timothy. There's different theories, but we don't really know. But it's someone they knew well. Like, obviously, in the situation, they knew exactly who he's talking to. I love the, word, the translation, comrade. He said, um, yes, and I ask you, my true comrade, Help these women, catch us, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. This is the same language Paul uses in chapter one, verse 27, where he talks about standing united for the sake of the gospel. These are two amazing women, two gifted women who have contended by the side. In the Greek, it says they're my fellow workers. It's the same kind of language Paul would use in other places of, of Apollos, the great leader, he said, these, these are two gifted women, but he said, would you help them uh, kind of get along because they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, there's the co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. And so what we believe is that we don't know exactly what the issue was, but we believe that these two uh, women who are powerful leaders in the church, that the, the that they were at the center of the crisis in some way. And so back in chapter two, then catch this, back in chapter two when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He's speaking to what's causing the conflict. These powerful leaders. Now, no show of hands here, but have you ever seen this in a church where you have gifted leaders and called of God and yet... There's a selfish ambition or a conceit or an ego 
that begins to derail those gifts and tear the church apart. It happens, doesn't it? And so what we're seeing here is if you want to build a, if you want to build a life group that's united, you want to build a family that's united, you want to build a marriage that's united, you want to build a whole church that's united, we have to reject narcissism. We can't do life the same old way. We have to stop living for ourselves and live for one another. We can't be living for ego. We can't be worried about who gets the credit. We can't be worried about who's more popular. We can't be worried. These kinds of things, they're part of the old life. Have you ever seen this like on a sports team or a business team? It's just doing conquering the world. They're doing so great. And then they begin getting concerned with who got the most receptions, who gets the most playing time, who was really the architect of that great plan. I mean, it happened to the Beatles, right? You think of the Beatles, right? The, you know, John and Paul can't, I mean, yeah, they can't get along, right? Yeah, and all you need is love. Yeah, right, but... But, uh, but you watch this time and time again, and this can happen in the church of Jesus, in a life group, in a marriage, in a family, that when selfish ambition and ego rise to the top, it will be the death knell of that community. Amen? Amen. All right, now, uh, number three, so number three is the positive side of number two, and Paul says it, it, we first have to catch the vision, secondly to reject narcissism, but number three, we need to embrace humility. And so often in the Christian community, uh, there have been time, many times where we have misunderstood humility. Sometimes humility, we think of having a low view of ourselves, almost like a low self-image. Um, sometimes we can think of humility as pretending to be bad at something we're really good at. You know? It's sort of a false modesty. You know, that humility would be like if Lauren leads us in worship uh, on a particular weekend and you come up afterwards and say, thank you so much. It was awesome. I just really sense the presence of God here. That we've often think that humility is oh, it really wasn't me, it was the band. Or humility is, oh, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. Or, it, hey, anyone could have done that, but thank you. It's like, no, not anyone could have done that. The reality is that Lauren has, uh, God has called Lauren to lead us in worship. He has gifted her that not anyone could do it. And as she's obedient and as she comes under his leadership, the Holy Spirit will flow through her leadership in a powerful way and will usher us into the presence of God. So an appropriate response is thank you very much. It's an appropriate response. Could she do that without Jesus? No. But we're not thanking her for Jesus. We're thanking her for her and her part in that partnership. Amen? Amen. Right. And so, so, humility is not pretending that you're not something you are. Humility is not having a lower view of yourself than you should. 
Humility is having an accurate view of yourself with strengths, weaknesses, and limitations. And humility is not thinking less of yourself than you should. Humility, catch this, is thinking of yourself less. One of the marks of a humble person, a truly humble person, is they're not self-absorbed. They're not self-centered. They are others-centered. Self-centered can look differently, can it? Insecurity is self-centeredness, isn't it? Arrogance is self-centeredness. But when we struggle with insecurity, we struggle with arrogance, we're struggling at the core with the same thing. It's all about me. One of the marks of a humble person is there, like, I think like this, if you've ever been to a great movie and you lose yourself in the movie, you're no longer thinking about you. You're thinking about out there. And the mark of a truly humble person, they're not thinking about themselves. They're kind of caught up with people out there. And they're thinking about them and their life. And because their emotions and their mental energy is caught up with others, they're not thinking about themselves. So humility has nothing to do with being weak. Jesus was called himself humble. We'll look at that next week. Take my yoke, I'm humble. But he was the strongest person that ever lived, right? He Great strength and courage. So Paul says that if we are going to build the community of Jesus, we have to not only reject narcissism, we have to embrace humility. And that's exactly what he says as he explains what humility looks like. In verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, look what humility does. In humility, think of yourself less, right? No, Uh, in humility, pretend you're no good at something. No, he says, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You're outwardly focused. And because you're outwardly focused, you're sensitive, You're listening, you're kind, you care, there's compassion. You don't have to be the hero of every conversation because you're caught up in the stories of others. You care about them and you're losing track of yourself. Does that make sense? And so Paul says that in order to build this community of Jesus, that Jesus came to to live a life worthy of the gospel, creating this community of King Jesus that we need to first catch the vision, secondly, reject a life of narcissism, me first, and third, embrace a life of humility, which I'm not necessarily thinking less of myself necessarily, but it's thinking of myself uh, uh, less. All right, now, what I want to do is to get really practical to see how we're doing, and again, I, I hope that you know this, I'm never trying to catch you, right? I'm never trying to go, oh, got you there. Uh, What I'm trying to do is just ask practical questions to help you assess how are you doing because often we can have blind spots we don't even realize, but when the right question is asked, it's like, oh, there's a growth area, and the Holy Spirit can speak and say, okay, so now you know what I'm trying to accomplish in your life, and we can begin to be transformed and to become like Jesus and move into the life and the future he has for us. So there in your note sheets, a section called Creating Community, four key questions. Number one. 
The first question is, are you catching the vision? We've talked today about the vision of the gospel. And we've been learning that the gospel is bigger than just our vertical relationship. It takes in our vertical and our horizontal relationship. And so the question is, are you catching that vision for your life? In other words, to live a life worthy of the gospel. That it doesn't just mean your vertical relationship with, with God has to be right. It means your horizontal relationships need to be right. And so you say, well, how do I know if I'm catching the vision? And I'd say, well, are you connected relationally with other Christ followers? Are you using your time, your gifts, and resources to band together to advance the gospel? Are you in community? Now, I think there's probably, like in a room like this or throughout the weekend, there will be many who would say no. And I think there are many different reasons for this. I think sometimes it's because we've never really been taught this. This probably doesn't apply to most of you because you're here, but it's fairly common when you talk to someone and say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the church. I don't believe I need to be in church, just me and God. And usually what that means is that they've just never really had the gospel explained to them, that they think of the gospel as vertical, so they think, okay, well, as long as I'm all right with God, I don't need anyone else since they've just never understood kind of a fuller view of the gospel. I think sometimes for some of us, it's just due to busyness that we would like to be more connected, but for whatever, life is busy and we just haven't made it a priority to be connected, to use our time, our gifts, and resources to help advance the gospel. And one of the reasons I'm sharing this is to help you understand, well, if we want to live a life worthy of the gospel, this is high priority. Like we would never say, well, our vertical relationship with God doesn't matter. Well, we can never say our horizontal. I think for some people, and some of you may be like this, is that for some of us here, you may have been once part of a community of Jesus and been very connected and really growing and really participating and contributing, using your time gifts, but then something bad happened. You were hurt. You had a bad life group experience. You were, uh, there was a failure of leadership. Some kind of moral failure. There was a church split. Something happened and you were deeply wounded. And when that happens, the natural tendency, and I totally get this, is just like, who needs church? I'll just pull away, me and Jesus, maybe me and my wife and Jesus if I'm married, uh, me and my family and Jesus, whatever. I'm just going to pull away, I'll hang with a few Christian friends, but I'm not really going to be involved. Or maybe it looks like this, I will still find a new church and go, but I'm going to sit in the back row. Now, for those of you back there, <laughs> I know some people just like the back row. I get that. Um, but, uh, but it's funny as I watch over the years because there have been many people over the years who have come like that to Rocky Peak, wounded. And you know what I often find is they start in the back and they start moving slowly up. And the safer they feel, they'll, they'll move up. And it's almost a symbolic, it's a beautiful thing. You, you watch that happening. But what I want you to catch, especially if you're in that zone, is that I totally get that. 
and it's understandable why you'd respond that way. But what I want to do is, is cast a vision that it's not God's vision for your life to stay there. He understands that you've been hurt. He understands that you have trust issues with leadership. He understands why you don't want to go back into a life group. You are deeply hurt. Like, he understands all of that, but he's going to call you at the right time, the right way to get back in the game because you can't win the game if you're not in the game. And if we're not connected in the community of Jesus, time, gifts, resources, relationally, we can't live a life worthy of the gospel because the gospel is about relationship. Number two, the second question is, are you moving towards conflict? So we've seen today that Euodia and Syntyche were not moving towards conflict, in their case because of pride and ego, but for other people it would be different reasons. Um, But this is not uncommon. And one of the things that I have found being in ministry is that uh, often we come to Jesus that so many areas of our life begin to change right away. But one of the slowest and the hardest areas to change is the way we do relationship. And part of it is because we just don't even know it's wrong. Like we know we're sleeping with people that aren't your spouse. We know that's wrong. Stop lying. Stop using those words. Uh, Go to church. Get involved serve, get, we know those things, those are clear, but we have this huge blind spot about relationships and what true love looks like. At the start of, this, of next year, the whole church, we're going to go through this together, we're going to be doing a series that's going to be ba- built on this series that's going to be called Loving People, Doing Relationships a Whole New Way. Because as followers of Jesus, we often just have never been trained this way. But can I tell you, one of the most important areas we need to learn how to do relationship differently is how we do conflict. So for many of us, we still do conflict today the same way we did conflict before we met Jesus. So if before we met Jesus, we were a voider, we still tend to avoid. If before we met Jesus, we were a denier, I'm not mad. I told you I'm not mad. <laughs> I've got nothing against them. All right? Get off my back. Um, if we were a denier before we met Jesus, now it's like, get off my back in the name of Jesus. You know? Uh, it's like, um, um, if, we were a t- if we were an attacker before we came to know Jesus, whether our attack is with words, slander, gossip, criticism, or whether it was with actions, whether they were direct or passive aggressive, we tend to bring that into the community. And so as followers of Jesus, if we are going to learn to create the community Jesus came to, but we have to learn how to move towards conflict like Jesus taught us. Now, we don't have time today to go into great detail about that. We'll talk about that in the upcoming series. But if you're hungry to learn more right now, let me recommend the book. I believe it's on your note sheet. It's called Crucial Conversations. It's a secular book, but it's an excellent book about how to move towards conflict in a positive way. I took our whole staff through this, and it was very, very helpful. Okay, so the question is, how do you respond to conflict? Do you respond the old ways, 
or do you find yourself moving towards conflict? Like Euodia and Syntyche, they were not moving towards it. They were separated. When you have conflict with someone in your life group, someone at the job, but I'm especially talking about Christians, someone in your life group, someone on a ministry team, someone hurts you, disappoints you, do you move towards it to seek reconciliation? Or do you withdraw, deny, or go on the attack like you used to like, do? Okay? That's the question. Number three. By the way, we can't live a life worthy of the gospel if we're, living, if we're doing relationships the same old way. Number three. Um, are you agreeing to disagree? You know, it's an interesting verse here, Philippians 2.2. 2. If you look at it, it says, I made a point of this as we're going through. He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. This is the comment that he, that I said in the Greek, it says that you would think the same thing. Um, this is what he, he challenged Yodia and Syntyche, to think the same thing. And so, but when Paul says think the same thing, he does not mean that in order to have a unified community of Jesus, we have to agree on every issue. Unity, this catches, unity does not mean uniformity. So in the Christian community, there are certain issues that are, we call them in theology, primary issues. These are issues that go to the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, who Jesus is, path to salvation, the authority of the word, the core moral code of the New Testament. And the New Testament is very clear that in these core primary areas, there's no room for disagreement. Like we, we have to hold each other accountable in these certain, these, these core areas. But there's also many other areas that are secondary areas. These are areas that are less clear, where Christians who love Jesus and love his word have disagreed over the centuries. And in the early church, there were issues like this too. Like in the early church, one of the biggest issues in the early church was, okay, so I'm a Gentile Christ follower. I'm a Gentile Messiah follower. I'm a follower of the Messiah, and I'm a Gentile. So how much of that Jewish stuff do I need to bring with me? Can I still have my BLT? <laughs> this whole circumcision thing is making me nervous. Right? Do I need to worship on the Sabbath, or can I worship any day? Do I need to celebrate the high holy days? And so Paul is very clear. If you were to read Romans 14, the beginning of 15, Paul's very clear that as followers of Jesus, Gentile believers, that you don't need to follow the food laws, worship on certain days, don't need to be circumcised, that these were all a foreshadow of things to come. And so as followers of Jesus, we have freedom. He says, but in the Christian community, imagining all these Jews and Gentiles coming together, there's going to be difference of opinion. And he says, there is a right and wrong. You don't have to do it. He says, but that not everyone is there yet. And he says, so on these secondary issues, catch this, it's more important to love and accept one another even if they're wrong than it, than it is to be right on everything. It's the mark of maturity that you're able to agree, to disagree 
on secondary issues even if you believe the person is wrong. Now this has great implication for us today. Like what are some secondary issues that we deal with today in Christian circles? Right? You might deal with something in your life group. But in Christian circles today, certain secondary theological issues, right? Like, like predestination and free will. Um, like creation. Is it six literal days or six longer periods of time? Or is it a, a literary framework the author? Like, well, I'll agree that God created. It just didn't happen. But how did he do it? That's a great example of gray error. Hey, which version of the Bible is the best? Should we use? Um, uh, women in ministry, spiritual gifts, do they exist? Today? These are secondary issues. They're important issues. But Paul would say you don't have to agree on all of those. What you need to agree on is we're going to pursue love, that love's our priority. That's what you need. We're going to seek the unity of the body. That's what's important that you agree on. That's what it means to have the same love. Uh, other examples, lifestyle issues. Should Christians drink or not drink? I'm talking alcohol. But uh, should drink, like some Christians think we shouldn't drink. Wow, wouldn't you just like get dehydrated? Um, yeah, uh, drink, not drink, forms of entertainment, Halloween, should we celebrate it? Or should we curse it, right? Uh, you know, two people, it's like, it's the devil's holiday, you know, and someone else, are you kidding? It's my favorite holiday of the year. I can't wait. Um, uh, politics. Okay, hands in your pockets, people. <laughs> hands in your pockets. Like, hey, as followers of Jesus, I would hope that, number one, we follow King Jesus, right? We want to we want to stand with we want to stand with whatever is good and right and true wherever we find it and whatever party it's in. Amen. Like we don't stand with just a part. I always support my party. Well, what if your party is off base in violating what Jesus clearly taught us? You going to stand with your party or you going to stand with Jesus on this issue? That's right. right? So as followers of Jesus, we stand with Jesus, and I would hope that as a church, we'd say, you know what? The goal of my life as I pray over these issues is to really seek the Holy Spirit. I really want to know the mind of Christ, and wherever it is, even if I'm wrong, I will switch positions. I would hope that we would all agree there. But the reality is, as we talk about different important issues in our culture that are tearing our culture apart, we all come from different backgrounds. We come from different perspectives. We have different life, And so we're going to see things differently. We're not going to all agree on immigration reform and the best way forward. We're not going to all agree on what's the best way to bring racial healing to our country. We're not going to all agree what's the best political party to be a part of. We're not going to agree on every single issue. But the mark of a mature follower of Jesus is that we will love one another on these secondary issues even if we think you're dead wrong. 
that we have learned to agree to disagree. So as followers of Jesus, we can have honest conversation and learn from each other and ask questions and explore, and that's how we grow. And so, are you learning to agree to disagree? And please hear me clearly. Like Paul said, it's not that certain things aren't right or wrong. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. What I'm saying is what matters more than what matters on this issue is what matters is we love and accept one another even if we disagree. Like to me, a healthy life group at Rocky Peak should be able to have uh, people on different sides of these issues. And not that we're always discussing them, but they come up. They come up during desserts. They come up, uh, you know, hopefully trying to stay away usually from them during the study time. But, you know, we're not going to, hey, well, let's, let's solve this immigration thing. You know, we're not going to do that. But they come up. And when they come up, how do you respond? Do you respond with love and respect and listening? Or do you have to convince everyone of your opinion and if they don't, you cut them out of your life because I thought that they were really a follower of Jesus. Yeah. All right. Number four. Number four, are you growing in humility? Of course, Paul says that if we're going to create this beautiful community of King Jesus, that we have to reject narcissism on the one hand and embrace humility. And so the question I would have for you is, would those who know you best, your marriage, your closest friends, if you're dating, people you're dating, you're engaged, who you're engaged to, your children, your coworkers, your ministry team, your life group, the people that know you best, closest to you, would they say, as time goes on, you are growing in humility? And here will be some other questions, just as you think through, because I want to give you some really practical questions that are like the marks of humility we often don't associate. But here will be some questions. Are you a better listener than you used to be? Are you more flexible in your opinions? Do you have a less need to control everything? Are you less critical, more gracious, and quicker to forgive? Do you less need to be right and have the final word? Are you less irritable? <laughs> Bingo. Are you more patient? Do you have greater compassion? higher sensitivity, deeper kindness, less self-absorbed. These are the marks of a humble person. And so here's what I want you to catch. If we want to create the community of King Jesus, we have to be transformed to be like King Jesus. And these are the marks of humility that Jesus models and next week, I can't wait. Next week, we're going to look at King Jesus, the model to follow. Because everything we're learning here, Paul's going to say, let me give you an example. Let's take a look at King Jesus, 
who, by the way, remember, was God and became one of us. And if that's not enough, he died the most horrifying, humiliating death of all. And he was not just doing it for us. He was modeling life in the kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your spirit and the way you speak to us. And we pray, Lord, that as a church, we continue to come under your leadership and just as our loving Father, as you shepherd us, that as you show us areas of our life you're working on, you're growing us, that we would just say, yes, Lord, we're open to that. We'd listen, we'd follow. We'd be open to your, uh, your shepherding in our life. We pray that as we bring our gifts, our tithes, our offerings, you'd use these to create a place that is the beautiful community of King Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Hey, a couple of things as we go. First of all, don't forget that if you need prayer tonight about anything, we have a prayer team. They have badges on. They just love to pray with you over to my right, your left, against the far wall. You head over there right after the service. Uh, secondly, I just want to remind you about Encounter t- Tomorrow Night. These are really amazing times. And our theme for this, this encounter is advancing the gospel. And so we're going to be taking what we've been learning and it's going to be an amazing time. I encourage you to be on time. We may even shut the doors because there's something that happens right at the beginning. It's going to, the place going to be very dark. And so I encourage you to be on time. There is childcare available up through fifth grade as well. So plan for about an hour and a half, uh, about 6 to 7.30, somewhere around in there. We usually run over a little bit because we're just having so much fun. But uh, that, that's kind of what we're aiming for. All right, so until, uh, until then, uh, or if I don't see you tomorrow night, until next week, may this be a week where you're growing in your understanding of the gospel. Uh, may God begin to increase your vision that when he called you to follow him, he called you to be part of something amazing, a whole new community, a whole new race, a whole new humanity being raised up to be like King Jesus where his younger brothers and sisters. We might be filled with his spirit. We might be transformed to be like him. We might go out and have that impact on the world here and now to prepare for his coming, but also that we have lived with him forever and that we're going to be with him forever. You're going to be there. I'm going to be there. That we're going to know each other. We're going to remember these days. And so the question is, what is God calling us to do as a church to advance the gospel? Amen? And the thing is, everyone, every one of us here has an important part to play in that. And so may this week be a week where God opens your eyes and gives you a bigger vision for this epic gospel to bring all creation under his leadership, healed and restored, and that we would be his people going out to reveal him as stars in a dark universe, holding out the word of life, as he'll say in Philippians 2. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.